this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University, and this is Shrink Speak. Life for the past nine plus months has been like nothing we've experienced before. We've gone through a series of crises that were unanticipated and in many cases unprecedented. First, it was the onset of what's become the COVID-19 pandemic. Subsequently, we had some very disturbing law enforcement abusive incidents that turned into a process of expression of injustice and social unrest in relation to racial bias. We have throughout, because of the shutdown of our society and business as usual, and the anticipated effects on the economy, experienced social and economic disruption. And all of this has been against the backdrop of escalating political turmoil, which is going to culminate in the presidential election. And then as if to punctuate this in a way that a few other things could in terms of an individual personage, there was the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which seemed to encapsulate all of the emotions that we've had in the context of this sequence of events in a way that was subsumed, not just with sadness, not just with disappointment, not just with fear and worry, but in a collective sense of grief, the national psyche grieving for so much of what seems to have been lost in this process and symbolized by Justice Bader Ginsburg's passing. So that's the topic of today's podcast. And to be able to do it justice, we pulled out all stops and used all of our chits to get you know two of the most eloquent and wise persons who are social commentators to discuss this. And that's uh, Drs. Andrew Solomon and Kay Jameson. So let me introduce them and then we'll get right to it. Andrew Solomon is the professor of clinical and medical psychology in psychiatry at the Columbia University Medical Center and College of Physicians and Surgeons, but he's more widely known as a journalist, a writer, a lecturer on politics, culture, and psychology. In addition to his literary exploits, Solomon has been an activist and an advocate for LGBTQ rights, mental health, and the arts, and he served as president of the Penn American Center previously. Our other guest is Dr. Kay Jamison. Dr. Jamison is the Dalio Professor and co-director of the Mood Disorders Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, she started out as an academic pursuing research in behavioral science and psychology, but she has become probably more widely known uh, for her writing. Dr. Jamison is the recipient of the MacArthur so-called Genius Award and also has been named a hero of medicine by Time Magazine. Her most recent book was a biography of Robert Lowell, Setting the River on Fire. This was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for biography in 2018. Currently, she's working on another new book called All the Dark Night, Healing the Mind, which we'll look forward to. So, Andrew Kay, thank you so much for being here today. Let me not sort of impose my characterization on the listening audience and yourselves but ask you, how do you understand and describe the sequence of events we've gone through, the effect on our individual and collective psyches? Kay, we'll begin with you. The word sequence is important. One of the things that I think has been on the positive side, and I'm not going to dwell long on the positive side, although it's my want, is that if you're working in a medical school or public health department, there's been a tremendous sense of purpose, tremendous sense of excitement at the science, the basic science, the clinical science, trying to help people, trying to reach people. But for each thing, I think that's been extraordinary. There's been sort of offsetting lack of cohesiveness in the message, 
from the federal government. So what you have is this confusion. What's frustrating is that a lot of this is so unnecessary. I mean, a certain amount of pain and suffering is built in, obviously, to a terribly traumatic situation, particularly for people who haven't got much money, who've got children to, uh, to teach at home. But I think it's been made so much worse by not having people come together in terms of saying, this is what we need to go through. We're going to do it together. These are the recommendations, and we're going to stick by the recommendations. We as a government are going to be really fabulously supportive and intelligent about what we do. The good side, I think, has been the extraordinary response of ordinary citizens, but also the press. I look forward every morning to picking up the Washington Post or the New York Times because I feel like they are in a battle for the country, for the country's soul and for the country's health. So you get your information from different sources. You'd like to be able to get it from the government. I don't think we have that option at the moment. But what we do have is incredible journalists who are out there investigating everything, putting together information, having a belief in the country that is so remarkable and so heartening. Well, thank you for seeing the glass half full instead of half empty. Andrew, how about you? Well, I deeply appreciate the wisdom and generosity of everything that Kay has said, and certainly also feel that the press has been remarkable. I would say that it has been not so much um, a sequence as a kind of accrual. I mean, first there was disease and the terror everyone has of getting sick and dying or of losing people who are very close to them. And then came on top of that, the need for quarantine. You know, Sartre said, hell is other people. But the reality is hell is other people and hell is also the absence of other people. And most of us went into some form of lockdown and were cut off from many of the people or most of the people who are important to us and were locked away with people whom we love very much in many instances, but with whom we now had a kind of unrelenting contact that was in some instances difficult for people. And then I think in part because of the tension that had been brought about um, by those circumstances, we had the economic catastrophe, which for people who work in fields that can be done from home and via Zoom was mostly not so acute, um, though people had some losses here and there. But there's been this terrible thing of so many people losing their jobs, losing their way forward, losing their hopes, losing their savings, and many of them becoming homeless, becoming desperate, not knowing how they're going to make it through. That's been a terrible, terrible burden for the American people. And then, as Kay said, there was a vacuum of leadership on all of these basic issues that were endemic to the pandemic. And there was a lack of anyone saying, this is the situation, this is what we need to do, here's how we're all going to do it together. Then you layer on top of that the fact that police brutality, which has been an issue in this country over a period of decades, suddenly came to the fore with a number of episodes, notably George Floyd's death, and launched a national conversation, an overdue and in many ways useful national conversation about race, but one which has been inflected with an air of violence and anger that has frightened away some people who might otherwise have stood with protesters. There have also, of course, been far more people who have protested peacefully and meaningfully. But for people who already felt insecure in their identity, 
the activism has sometimes felt daunting and uh, overwhelming. So that's been both, I think, one of the best things that's happened in recent American history and an extremely difficult time for many Americans. We've had the president then sowing lies and exercising such extraordinary incompetence, the idea that the United States, known as the wealthiest country in the world, has had the highest death rate from this pandemic of any country, is so shocking and so incredible. And yet there has been a divide between the people who were shocked and incredulous and the people who were cheering on the president. And then, as you asked, came Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I had met her a few times, but I didn't know her. Certainly she, I doubt, would have even known my name. I had nonetheless a sense of personal loss as though a member of my family had died. There are very few people in public life who stand for everything that I believe is important and who are voices for the fundamental humanity of every living person. As a gay person, as a Jew, as someone who belongs to some of the minorities that the current white supremacist movement would like to defeat, I'm very aware of how profoundly we need to have people who see us all in equal terms. And the generosity with which Ruth Bader Ginsburg approached issues of gender especially, but also of sexuality, of disability, of every form of difference was a kind of shining light in the United States. And the idea that she would be replaced by someone appointed by a completely self-interested administration, it's heartbreaking, it's painful. It, it seems to spell the end of a certain moral universe that I think has been a beacon to the world and to suggest that that may not be that beacon shining from the Supreme Court, from Washington DC, from the United States of America again. And so I feel a loss of someone whom I admired, I feel a loss of a certain ideal, and I feel a loss of dignity for the United States, and in that regard for all American people. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died as someone who was an idol or a hero to many, and you know, for the duration of her life, nobody could ever find the clay feet that so many of our heroes ultimately you know, succumbed to or, or revealed to have. It's one of the hardest thing in teaching students or trainees is, you know, we all aspire to certain ideals, but to be able to maintain them throughout a lifetime is another matter. And she certainly did that. So tell me if you think this is over embellishment or hyperbole, but embedded in the series or the kind of accretion of insults that we've experienced and the emotional reactions to those, why should they really be able to be refracted through a sense of a grieving process. And what I would say and ask you about is when Kennedy was shot, there was a loss of innocence in the country. When Nixon was revealed, it was like a loss of faith and trust in government. You know, we've been deprived of so many of our idealizations. They've kind of occurred now, either be reprised or anew, you know, in this series of, of events. But the one that, you know, I think I could say is probably new to all may have gone before is the idea of a plague in the 21st century is like an anachronism. You know, these things were biblical, apocalyptic. How could they happen? And they reflect the loss of our confidence in the parenting protection of government, which we can't rely on to protect us because they fell down on the job and we 
compounded the catastrophe. So to put this into a form of a question, is it a useful you know, cognitive reframing to think of what we're going through as a way of providing us with a chance? And this is coming back to Kay's, you know, trying to find the hopeful aspect of it. You know, we see this as an opportunity for new renewal and sort of recommitment to something. Is that being Pollyannish and simplistic or is that a reasonable message to try and communicate? I don't think it's that Pollyannish. I think that it's so horrific what we're going through now, not just the country, but the world. But I think it's also true that we have become so complacent in this country so jaded and so taking for granted the things that are good about the country. This, I think, has forced people to fight for the country. And I, I take the press as one example that I think has been a, a group that has been fighting really hard. I think there have been a lot of people in the medical world, a lot of people around the country in all sorts of positions, teachers that have been trying to restructure things and reimagine things. And so, yes, it's terrible now. There's no question about it. But what comes out of it, I don't think we know. There's still a lot of people who are extraordinary. They're not Ginsburg. I mean, who, who is? But there are a lot of people who are coming down the pike, I think, who will do remarkable things. The country needs healing. It needs building. It needs all sorts of things. But we've forgotten how to do that. We used to be okay at that. You know, that used to be what we were good about was fighting for democracy and, and advocating for democracy. We've been sloths. And I think this is prodding. It's, it, it doesn't mean that what we're going through now is good, but it does mean that I think it'll have some good things come out of it. Andrew, what do you what say you? Well, I mean, I would say, to use the old cliche, it's an ill wind indeed that blows no good at all. and. I think we're often strengthened by adversity. I think that even people who are grappling with psychiatric diagnoses can ultimately be strengthened by the experience of enduring them and living with their consequences. And I agree that we've fallen out of the habit of encountering meaningful adversity and that we don't seem to have known where to begin as this adversity dawned. But the question, I think, and it is, as Kay just pointed out, not just an American question, but a worldwide question. There's, of course, the question of this disease. And um, there are all of the wonderful things that scientists working on vaccines, working on patient treatment, doctors, nurses, healthcare workers of every possible description. There's been an occasion for heroism, and a lot of people have risen to heroism. The press, of course, includes everything from the New York Times and the Washington Post to Fox News and Breitbart. And some of the press has been heroic. Some of the press has been less than heroic. Healthcare workers, though, I think have been pretty much universally heroic in the way that they have taken this on. But in times of crisis, there is an unfortunate tendency for people to shift toward admiration for uh, strong men and toward dictatorial leadership. And it's also the case that each time a new means of communication enters into the mainstream, there is disruption. When the printing press was discovered, it led to the religious wars that endured for the following hundred years. 
when broadcast media came along, fascism and communism as we knew them in the 20th century were disseminated and enforced in a way that would have been almost unimaginable prior to that time. And I think now with the dawn of the internet, we live in a further period of crisis. What's happened over these last months has tested our ability to withstand the darkness that can be conveyed through our lack of insight into an understanding of the internet and what its means of communication entail. It is possible that we will all emerge from this stronger and wiser, and it is possible that things will go seriously awry. When I was a child, I remember hearing about the Holocaust from my father. And I said to him when he described what had happened, I said, but why didn't those people just leave Germany when all of those terrible things were building up? And my father said two reasons. He said they didn't believe it could happen there and they had nowhere else to go. And I remember as a child thinking, if things get really bad, I had to be prepared to grab my passport, get on the next flight and leave if leaving is what's necessary. And I have to have arrangements in place so that I have another place to go. And I ultimately took dual nationality with Britain, which is its own mess at the moment. I don't feel we're at that point yet. And I don't feel we'll necessarily get to that point. But I think we have to entertain it as a real possibility in a way that I have never felt before in my lifetime. You know, I think Kay, apart from just, you know, your respective natures, Kay's had the benefit of living a major part of her day in the environment of a academic medical institution that has really responded in an exemplary fashion and, you know, given encouragement. Whereas, you know, Andrew, you know, you've existed in more in the kind of rough and tumble uh, extramural world of uh, uh, the various spheres in which you function. But as I listen to you, and particularly with the comments you just made, Andrew, about, you know, the historical events that led to bad sort of episodes following them, it's sort of like a Promethean myth being reprised, you know, discover fire, which is an invention, but then you don't know how to use it properly. So in this case, maybe the internet, you know, maybe it's the political process, but is it, again, uh, am I trying to overly mythologize, but is, it, is this like a, a stark contrast between the forces of good and the forces of evil? Well, I don't think anything is ever a stark contrast between the forces of good and the forces of evil. In the first place, I think most people like to think of themselves as good and most people act on the basis of authentic beliefs. So there are many people whom I experience as doing terrible things but I'm hesitant to describe them all as evil. There are figures I would describe as evil, but I don't think that evil is the basic human condition. In that regard, I'm an optimist. But I also think that people are nuanced and people are complex, and all of us contain elements of good, elements of evil, and a great deal that falls either between or outside of those categories. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, who I know is our uniting theme today, I'm not aware of anything evil that she's done, but perhaps the people that are closest to her did. But in general, if we're talking about the general population, you know, the general population wants to see to the greater good. They're not always willing to make a lot of sacrifices in order to achieve that. But in general, most people would like to have a happier, more prosperous world. And 
many of the ones who act in ways that are sadistic or cruel or ungenerous have been driven to those tendencies by traumatic experiences of one kind or another. I would say that I feel there's a lot of evil that has been unleashed in the world, but I would be hesitant to say that there's any more evil in the general population than there ever has been. Let me put it in a more mundane and less melodramatic way. The whole world is subject to this, but America is you know, experiencing it you know, in a much more extreme way. Is this a inflection point from which you know, we'll be able to recommit ourselves and rise to the occasion and you know, move to you know, sort of a higher level of civil progress as the leader of the free world and as the most successful country ever in history? Or is this, you know, one of the fall of Rome's, you know, uh, milestones of its demise? People have a tendency, I think, to end up inventing their way out of a lot of horror. I think people have a way of healing in a way that no one could possibly imagine. And I think Andrew's, in, in my experience, in dealing with our own psychiatric problems and the many psychiatric problems of the people we deal with and treat would be to say, my God, you know, I spent a lot of time on college campuses and talking to kids with really severe bipolarism. And I think to myself, how could anybody survive this? I mean, how could anybody get through it? And they do, and they get through it and they come through tougher and they come through often with a commitment to serving the greater good in a way that they, you would not have predicted earlier in their lives, perhaps. So I think we don't know. I think there's a lot of extraordinary imagination and wonderfulness in people. I think there's an tremendous amount of lethargy and greed in people. So I think all these things are complicated. Justice Ginsburg was remarkable. And I think that, you know, it, it's true she was remarkable and extraordinary, but it's also true that she's out there now as someone that people can look to, particularly young girls, in a way in which is quite wonderful. I think also, as a woman, I think looking to Nancy, the Speaker of the House, has taken up a lot of the role, moral road, not just political, but saying, what are we as a country? Where are we going to go? I think there have been a lot of people that have come out of this. And I think, hopefully, that's what we will respond to as a country. I mean, there aren't any guarantees. Who knows? I would vote on the side of something good coming out of all of this. Well, spoken like the genuine author of one of your many books, uh, in this case, Exuberance, The Passion for Life. Andrew, uh, do you have a counterpoint or are you in agreement? Oh, I think that was very eloquently said. And I'm in cautious agreement. You know, we sadly, or perhaps fortunately, don't have crystal balls to see exactly what lies ahead. But there is good in people. There are many young idealistic people in the country. I keep my toes and fingers crossed. The fact that so much of the country could tolerate someone who has used the situation of this pandemic, not as an occasion for expression of great empathy, but rather as an occasion to forward his own political and financial interests. The ability of people to hold on to that. And I have been working on a project that involved my spending quite a bit of time in Utah, and I interviewed a lot of the people who were in support of this administration. I feel like, you know, again, I don't think it's evil exactly, but I think it's um, naive. And I think as Kate just said, there's a lot of greed in people, but there's also the capacity for endless reinvention and rebirth. And I suppose 
I think in connection with what Pedro said so eloquently, that we all remember Martin Luther King saying, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I don't know how long it will take for our arc to bend toward justice again. I hope it will only take a short while, but in any event, um, let's, let's go on believing that that's where things are headed. Let me try and bring this down to a personal level, even though I've sort of been pushing this at the most you know, profound and uh, historical uh, dimensions. So, you know, we're now going through the COVID pandemic and the uh, other kind of events that have roiled our society in, in the aftermath, and they've had this collective stressor or otherwise emotionally disruptive effect on us. And if you think about it from a public health standpoint or public mental health standpoint, it's affecting everybody, but to different degrees, depending on their circumstances and their own kind of predispositions. So you've got children, you've got older people, you have people with pre-existing mental conditions that may be aggravated by this. And you have individuals that by virtue of their social adversity, you know, living in multifamily, small houses are more exposed are more prone to substance abuse, may be more inclined towards expressions of violence, criminal or domestic. So as individuals who are really educationally and intellectually enlightened, but also have experienced mood disorders in the past, how are you dealing with it individually? And how are you advising people who may ask you sort of what's the best way for me to cope with this as we go through this? And also mindful of the fact that it's not a one and done kind of natural or human made disaster. This is a prolonged one that still is going to continue for some months or more beyond this. Andrew. Well, uh, in terms of my own mental health, I'm aware that it's fragile. My greatest personal loss in this pandemic is that the psychiatrist, the uh, therapist whom I've seen for 25 years died early on in the pandemic. It's a grievous and terrible loss, and this is a difficult time to be starting over again from scratch. I felt that I had to pay attention to my own condition, uh, and I've been aware as we went along and as stresses of various kinds accumulated of constantly having to distinguish between an appropriate reaction to troubling circumstances and the risk of it flowing over into paralyzing mental illness in which I became severely disabled and entirely unable to function, a situation I've been in before. I've seen the advent of a lot of what appears to be mental illness around me. And I get letters from people all the time. I got one just a couple of weeks ago that someone wrote about a friend who had been struggling with the quarantine and the isolation, who had been by herself and who had seemed to be getting more depressed in a series of emails and who then hanged herself. And so her friend wrote to me about what that experience had been like. Having said that, I think, again, that the medical and the psychiatric field have been extraordinary in broadcasting the fact that all the people who think there's a terrible stigma associated with experiencing symptoms of depression and anxiety in particular should be aware that the rates of depression and anxiety are much higher than they have been in the past and that there is no shame in experiencing those symptoms now. And I think a great deal of good advice has been available in forums such as this one. I also think that there are many people who are trying to teach people 
I was on a webcast yesterday in which I was being interviewed along with someone who is the chief guidance counselor in an impoverished region of Texas in the public school system. And she talked about what she'd been doing with the kids to try to help them get through this at a time when, I mean, a recent study said that 90% of children between the ages of seven and 20 are showing some symptoms of clinical depression and 80% some symptoms of clinical anxiety. There are a lot of heroes who are working on it. There's a lot of good help available. The problem, which is the problem with American medicine from top to bottom, um, and particularly with psychiatry, is getting the people who need help to the people who can help them. Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, Andrew. I've got your doctor. I'm really sorry. That's. Thank you. I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate that my husband and I live out in the country and it's quiet and I can walk. So I'm completely aware that I'm luckier than so many people who are in very small spaces with a lot of people and hopeless. One of the things that uh, one of my colleagues at Hopkins is running the kind of psychiatric services for the whole hospital, for the, all the doctors and nurses and people who, custodial staff and, and anybody who needs additional help, psych, psychological help during this time. And what's been amazing, I was looking at, she did Grand Rounds the other day, and her entire screen was filled with people in the Department of Psychiatry who had volunteered and who are volunteering everything they have in terms of time and expertise in order to help people. Because as you said, the, you know, the rates of anxiety and depression particularly have just been skyrocketing. So we have such a broken health system. And I think the cynicism and the cruelty of the administration is just ratchets up the incompetence of the healthcare system. That's not the incompetence, the unavailability of the healthcare system to pitch in when people most need it. And that's part of what, when Andrew says incompetence, there is this massive incompetence of, of our government at the moment. And that to me is a very frightening sort of thing. So I think that affects everybody one way or another who is trying to struggle their way out of this kind of deep hole. It makes you think that you know you're on your own. You don't can't rely on what is kind of the all. Exactly, there's such a selfishness, and in, in the in the top layers of the government, or I should say, the top layers of the White House, you know, such selfishness and cruelty, just a complete unawareness of the suffering of the people. There's no sense of this is America, this is my country, this is what I'm going to do, and mobilize everything, whatever it takes. I mean. That's what you, you would want to have. You would assume you would have. Yeah, the convening authority of the federal government has been abdicated and it's been left to the states, to the cities. So you have New York in which Governor Cuomo has been exemplary. And then you have places like Florida where DeSantis is like, I don't, you know, Nero is fiddling while Rome is burning. You know, a small silver lining here is the fact that healthcare has adopted almost overnight telemedicine. Yes. And, and the good news is it's been extremely effective. The less good news is that even though we know just both by virtue of data from past disasters, ranging from you know, the Great Depression, the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, Hurricane Sandy, 9-11, we know that there'll be increments in the incidence of certain mental disorders or certain types of social pathologies like drug abuse, suicide, criminal violence, 
everyone consensually agrees about this and you can actually put numbers around the rates that you can anticipate, but nothing is being done. There's, you know, Andrew is uh, mentioning uh, how people have been making efforts to address it, but these are one-offs from the ground up, not from the top down. So there's not no population focus. But let me just ask Kay before we run out of time, and because this is sort of the overarching theme, uh, grief and grieving, you wrote a book when uh, your husband, my good friend and colleague, Richard Wyatt, passed called Nothing Will Ever Be the Same. Does that have relevance? Does that fit what we're going through in the sense of emerging from something which is this uh, process of grief? I think so in a lot of ways. I think one of the things that grief has going for it is most people know what it is. People experience it. So you're not so alone with it. So what we're going through now, I think people have a sense of, of the common experience. In a way, it's very unlike depression where it's very hard for people to really relate to people being severely depressed. I think it's easier for people to understand and solace somebody who is, is grieving. But I think like with grief is it takes time, you know, that you just can't cut it short. You know, you keep thinking, why am I still feeling this a year and a half later? You know, why am I still experiencing this massive sense of being overwhelmed out of the blue? Um, It lasts a long time, but it does get better. And you do gain some aspect of life and appreciation for life, appreciation for people, for the kindness of people the generosity of many people who've been through similar experiences. I'm writing about grief and healing the mind and and they're very different aspects of of the kind of healing I think that goes on with grief from other kinds of situations. But, But certainly it's a generative phenomenon. I think grief exists for a reason. I think people have to go through it in order to learn to come to terms with things. There's a lot of overlap between the symptoms or the experience of depression and the grieving process, but one is you know sort of hardwired into us and you know is ubiquitous or inevitable, and there's a way to emerge from it that's uh, salutary. Andrew, do you see the difference as someone who's experienced depression and also grief with the passing of your mother and other close friends or, or, or family members? And uh, is there a way that we can use this in positive way to uh, utilize the mechanisms of grieving? Well, I think grief can often be a trigger for depression. So people have some degree of vulnerability to depression, and then they go through a traumatic loss. And that traumatic loss of somebody can either provoke a sort of pure grief reaction or can push the person into depression. And it's important to know which is which. As Kay has said, uh, grief is an incredibly important part of the human psyche. You know, if I said, I love my husband and I love my children, but if they die, I'll meet somebody else, it wouldn't be the relationship that it is. The nature of my love for them is to be terrified of the loss that could conceivably ensue if anything were to happen to them. That's really a big part of what love is. So I would never want to discount or do away with grief or even with the prospect of grief. But I think grief is a sense of despair that is proportional to the loss that has taken place. And I think, 
and Kay is the one who's writing a book on this, but I think over time, um, a grief tends to resolve itself, not to the point where you forget about everything. I mean, you mentioned the death of my mother, that's um, 30 years ago, and I still feel deeply sad about it and wish she had met my children and a thousand other things but it becomes more manageable and is incorporated into your general consciousness. Depression that's triggered by grief tends to escalate. It tends to become more and more disabling. The person who's slipping into depression loses his or her vitality uh, and struggles more and more acutely with the ordinary business of day-to-day -day life. I've sometimes said that One's grief should drive one to build a better world, and one's depression tends to drive one to stay in bed with the covers pulled up over one's head. You know, one's grief makes one think there is pain in the world. Can I assuage other people's pain? How can I address this? What can I do to memorialize the person I've lost or the situation I've lost or the understanding of myself that I've lost, whatever it is that is the occasion of that. Grief has beauty woven into it. Depression, though one can learn a great deal from it, I would say does not have beauty woven into it. Andrew, Kay, I want to thank you for a really uh, stimulating and formative discussion, which we could continue indefinitely, but due to limits of time, we'll have to call a close to. So I want to thank the uh, people who are listening. I want to thank Drs. Solomon and Jameson for their participation today and uh, remind you that this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University speaking to you for Shrinkspeak. Speak.